You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, this, uh, this past season for Rachel and I, uh, as parents, have been, uh, I'll say, trying. Uh, so we have five kiddos, and they range from age 14 down to age five. And with our 14-year-old and our, our 12-year-old entering into middle school and high school, it's been a brand new season for us. And, and it's been a wonderful season, but it's been a new season. We've never had teenagers. We've never had high schoolers. Uh, I, my wife just signed one of our children up for a driver's permit. And the earth tore asunder beneath my feet, and I felt like I was falling into a crevice because I'm not sure how that happened. It must be the apocalypse. But beyond that, while we're experiencing all of these new things, we are still in the throes of life with little kids. And so specifically with our five-year-old, we're in this season where he is, is just becoming smarter and smarter and smarter by the day. He increasingly can, can figure out with exact detail what he wants, when he wants it, and how he wants it. But the problem is he, he doesn't often know why he wants certain things, what I would call the, the need behind the need or the desire behind the desire, and he doesn't know oftentimes how to articulate fully what he needs and desires, especially when emotions are high. Now, if you've had little kiddos like that, perhaps this is a situation that you're well acquainted with. But the truth of the matter is that phase of not really knowing the deepest needs that you have, nor understanding fully how to voice and express and articulate to yourself and the world around you, those needs does not stop at the age of five. For those of you that are married, I could probably ask your spouse, and they would confirm for me that you don't really know what you need, and even when you think you do, you're probably pretty terrible at communicating. Listen, the the book of, of, of Psalms, this collection of songs that we have been given, exists as an amazing gift to not just speak to us, but to speak through us. Psalms exist to give voice to our needs and desires, including those needs and desires that we are not aware that we have. Like a good parent who takes the time when their child is a mess, with anger or frustration or sadness because they don't really understand what's going on inside of them, nor can they communicate it well, the Lord has bent down to us and in the Psalms has looked us in the eye and said, I know what's going on inside of you. Let me help you understand and let me give you words to describe to me and to those around you what it is that's going on. 
If you look throughout the collection of psalms, many of them reflect utter neediness. I remember one time I was, uh, I, was, I was with Pastor Robert, and we were at a gathering with other pastors, and at some point in time, the discussion kind of flipped into, um, who, who do you identify with within Scripture? Like, what, what individuals, what persons within Scripture do you identify with? And uh, I remember someone, it might have been Robert, said, David, David. And this was, uh, I would say, early on in my faith, as if I am not still arrogant and prideful, but let's just pretend that that's gotten less over the last few years and the Lord has dealt with that. And I remember being like, oh man, I would never say that about David. Like, I don't identify with him at all. And, and whoever it was said, why? And my response was, he's a mess. Like a mess. Have you ever read the Psalms? Like he's schizophrenic, right? The stories of David, he might be a man after God's own heart, but like, I look at David and feel pretty good about my life when I read his story. And, uh, and then, over the next uh, 10 years, the Lord, I think, went, Oh yeah? Is that how you see things, Michael? Because you're just like it. And now, I read the Psalms, and it's like, Oh, David, I get it, man. I get it. There are so many psalms that, if nothing else, just describe how needy humanity is. And Psalm 143 might be the pinnacle of the needy psalms. In 12 verses, there are 13 requests for help or need or to fulfill a desire that the Lord gives through the voice of David or the psalm writer, right? Like I, 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 I know walking through like Target with my kids, I'm gonna get like five or six requests of like, oh, can we get that? Can we get that? Oh, I need that. I need a new pair of, I need this. And David unfolds Psalm 143 and he's like, Michael, I'm gonna put your kids to shame. Again and again and again, the cadence is simply one request after another, after another, after another. But David, I would say, is not less in tune with himself. I would in fact argue that David is probably far more in tune with who he really is and how desperate and needy and helpless he truly is than we are. Here's what I want us to see as we walk through Psalm 143. You can group all of those 13 requests from David into three main needs that he identifies for us and gives us words in order to not just understand them, but to describe them, communicate them, back to the Lord and to others around us. The first need he shows us is the position that we need. The position that we need. He goes on from there to describe and show us the person that we need. And finally, he helps us to see the place that we need. The position, the person, and 
the place. The position we need begins in verse 1. David says, blessed be the Lord, or I'm sorry, David says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy in your faithfulness. Answer me in your righteousness. My brother-in-law works uh, for a university in Illinois, and he's really, in his entire career, worked in what's called advancement. Uh, Advancement, in my layman terminology, is a really fancy way of saying he asks people for money. Um, He is a professional asker for money. Uh, There feels like there's a joke in there about my children as well, but I won't I won't I won't go that direction right now. Um, But I I remember asking him one time because it just it baffles me um, the amount of money he sometimes asks donors for and the regularities he's having to have those conversations. Now, as a church planter, here's one thing uh, that you should know. Uh, We are also professionals at asking people for money. Um, That's just a part of the game when it comes to dropping into an area and saying, we're going to build, by God's grace, a church from the ground up. Right? And so I was was asking Stephen, my brother-in-law, one time, describe to me this process. Like, how, how does it go? You just show up somewhere and just be like, listen, the university needs you. Could you give us a million dollars? And he said, no, 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 I mean, when we, when we visit people, like it, it, it's a long runway of building relationship before we go in for the ask. And so sometimes I'll, I'll fly and meet with someone at their home or in their city, you know, a, a number of times before we get on any conversation that sounds like the needs of the university or opportunities to invest in the university or to help students within the university and and actually make the financial ask. Well, David has one of two things clearly in this psalm by the way he enters into it. He either has a long standing and deep relationship with the Lord already, or he is desperate so desperate in this moment that there is no soft pedaling. There's no warming up to the Lord, right? There, there is no just kind of trying to get on his good side before he goes in for the ask. David immediately comes before the Lord and simply says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. As an aside from from this specific psalm, let me just tell you, I believe that those are the two most important ingredients when it comes to our prayer life. Knowing the Lord and knowing our need. When we know the Lord and we see how desperate we are apart from Him, you will, we will, by God's grace, pray. And clearly, David enters into this prayer in that space. He needs help from the Lord, and he needs an answer to his prayers. And so he appeals to the Lord's faithfulness and righteousness, knowing that the Lord is indeed faithful, trustworthy, delivers on his promise, and he is righteous in relationship. The Lord always does what is right and good. But almost immediately after David enters into this prayer, he runs into a catch-22 in verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, 
for no one living is righteous before you. Uh, Some of you, or maybe even all of you, know that the phrase Catch-22 comes from a book that was written in 1961. The title of the book was Catch-22, and it was about uh, this man who was in the Air Force, and he was preparing to be forced to fly as a pilot an incredibly dangerous mission. And in his mind, he was trying every which way to get out of this this mission that he was, in his own mind, assured would lead to his death. Now here's the catch-22. The only way to get out of flying was if a pilot was deemed to be insane. To be deemed insane, a pilot needed to request a psychiatric evaluation. If a pilot requested on his own a psychiatric evaluation, that was proof that he was sane. Therefore, no pilots could get out of flying by being deemed insane. A catch-22 is this dilemma where there is no apparent way out, where the necessary parts are mutually exclusive. Right? If you found yourself outside of your house with the door locked and realized that your key was on your dresser in your bedroom, the issue would be, in order to get your key, you needed to unlock the door, but in order to unlock the door, you needed to have your key. David comes before the Lord and finds himself in a catch-22. He desperately wants and needs the perfect and just God of the universe to answer him and to help him. In order to get that help, in order for the Lord to hear him, he needs to be close to the Lord. He needs to be intimately connected to the Lord so that he would ensure that the Lord would hear his pleas. But to be intimately close to the Lord meant to enter into his presence with sin. And as the Lord God told his people multiple times in Scripture, a sinful man or woman in his presence means death. Because the Lord is righteous. He is just. He is holy. David desperately needs the Lord. He needs to come face to face and ask the Lord for help, and yet he also knows that he cannot bring his sin into the presence of the Lord. This is a universal human problem. We were created to be in the Lord's presence. Our lives now are broken and afflicted because we live apart from him. Because, like our forefathers, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, we were removed from his physical presence. And so here we are, as those created, needing the Lord and to be in his presence, and yet we have this issue where we cannot come into his presence because of sin. Because he is holy and we are not. No one living, David says, is righteous before you. 
David sings, just like we sang a moment ago, Lord, I need you. But then he goes on to say, I'm concerned, though, if I come close to you, I will be condemned, judged, consumed. So how does David reconcile this problem? Well, honestly, he doesn't. He simply moves forward and says, For the enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart is appalled. And then he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. David doesn't resolve the tension. What he does is he says, and yet, God, I remember that you have been kind to me. I have remembered that you have answered my prayers. I have remembered that you have been gracious to me. I have remembered that you have been merciful to me. I meditate on all the things that you have done, and so I will go ahead and ask for mercy. See, David, he identifies the problem with the position that he needs to be in but doesn't understand how he can be in. And yet he moves forward, not because he's able to logically resolve the dilemma, but because he simply experienced the Lord enough to know, even with my sin, somehow... The Lord has been gracious and kind to me, and I'll expect that he will continue to do so. David couldn't yet see what we, standing on this side of the cross, know. David saw in part what we now see in whole. Listen to this from Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That sounds like exactly what David said when he said, Enter not into judgment against me, for no one living is righteous before you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See, David knew, sitting before the Lord, God, I'm sinful, and you are not. And yes, I need your help right now, but I also know that beyond being kind, you are also just. And so somehow I need your kindness right now without receiving the just punishment of my sin. David knew, as a matter of fact, in other Psalms, he says, Blessed is the man whose sins are overlooked by the Lord. And Paul, writing years and years later, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, says, You know how the Lord was able to pour out his kindness while passing over former sins. Was it by simply ignoring them, ignoring evil, being an unjust type of God? 
No. It's because the sins of every saint, past, present, and future, were bottled up, stored up, and then placed on the shoulders of Jesus. That punishment was given to him on the cross. And now, because of that, we actually get to come into the presence of the Lord, not as those who are unrighteous, but those who now carry the righteousness of Christ. Hebrews 4 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, like us, has been tempted. Yet he was without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The answer to David's dilemma, the position that we need, is a position face to face with the Lord where he hears our cries for mercy and yet a position where we stand there, not in the reality of our own sin, but in the greater reality of Jesus, our Savior, our great high priest, perfect righteousness. So that as we come before the Lord and say, hear my pleas for mercy, we stand there not as sinners condemned, but as the perfect son, Jesus, in his righteousness. This is the position that we desperately need. But David goes on. He describes not just the position that we need, but also the person that we need. In verse 7, he says this, Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you... I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. David returns to his plight in verse 7, pleading with the Lord to answer him quickly because his spirit fails. He's in grave trouble to the point of death. Now, again, let me just qualify this for a moment. There are are several psalms that are attached to historical events where we can go back and see exactly what was going on in the life of the psalmist. But Psalm 143 is, is not labeled that way. And so I don't know exactly what was going on in the life of David. I don't know that if he was facing a physical threat or, or he was dealing with a, a, a terribly difficult emotional Um, or or mental or spiritual event in his life. But one of the things that I know that we're prone to do is we see some of the strong wording of the Psalms is to say, I'm not there. I just have a difficult relationship with a coworker. 
I'm not there, it's just a difficult season in parenting. I'm not there, it's just a, a, a hard season with finances. I'm not there, there's just this one aspect of my life that I long to see growth in that I haven't been able to get my arms around. But the truth of the matter is, David doesn't describe exactly what he's going through. What he does describe to us is that he's backed into a corner. And he has either found that there is no other way out, or perhaps he's just found out that the best way out, the only true way out, is by coming face to face with the Lord. Don't talk yourself into the fact that your problems are small. This is one of the things that we tend to do. I see it all the time in counseling. I'll, I'll meet with somebody, or, or maybe it's not even counseling, just a, a conversation with a friend, and they'll say something like, oh, you know, I'm going through this or this, but you know, there are starving kids in Africa. Like, that's totally true. I have no clue what that has to do with your marriage problems. Right? Like, we, we live in a broken world, and I'm not making light of life or death situations. In fact, what I'm trying to say is that the Lord is so big and so good that he can very easily handle life and death situations as well as whether or not you're going to get the parking spot that you want. David goes to the Lord and simply says, answer me quickly, O God. Please hear my prayer. And then David goes on to what I would call sum up his big request to the Lord. So what's his kind of big culmination? Here's what he says in verse 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Now, wait a minute, David. The enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me sit in darkness like dead people. My spirit faints. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face like, lest I be like one who goes down to the pit. And so he gets to the big moment of the big ask and he says, so here's what I need, God. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Imagine for a second, go through a mental exercise with me. Imagine for a second that you get a phone call in the middle of the night. It wakes you up out of your sleep and you get a phone call. And one of your greatest fears are realized by what the person on the other end says. It's one of those situations where you feel like there is only one way out and maybe that one way out feels like it's going to take a miracle. And so, at the end of the phone call, you hang it up, and you get down on your knees, and you begin to pray. And you ask the Lord for this specific thing that feels like it's the only answer to this difficult situation. You wake up the next morning, and your day, or perhaps your year, or your life, or someone else's life, depends on whether or not the Lord is going to answer this specific prayer, this specific request. Now, now here's the truth. Some of you have been in that exact spot. 
Some of you have had the Lord answer yes. And some of you have been in that spot and felt like the Lord has answered no. But what if, without telling you whether or not the Lord would answer your specific prayer in the specific way that you were asking, what if I could assure you, and you could actually believe it, that the God of the universe who created everything out of nothing that holds all the stars in the skies and produces the miracle of life would on that very day perfectly love you and would perfectly play that love out in the way that he would answer your prayer. What if without talking to you about the specific prayer that you had or the specific way you wanted that situation dealt with, I could assure you that the God that holds the stars in the sky and controls every speck of dust in the air would on that very day and in that very moment and in the days to come would perfectly love you and that perfect love would in fact be played out in the way that he answered your prayer. Perhaps then in that moment you and Lord knows I could start to release the grip on things that we think we so desperately need to have. Because in that moment, we would live, by God's grace, as beloved children of the king of the universe. There's, a, there's this movie, and I, 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 I always hesitate to quote movies in this church because I, every time I do, it's like I'm making up the movie title and no one has ever seen the movie. Do you guys know who Steve Martin is? Okay, so five of you. It's fantastic. Lord have mercy. Wait, that's what David said. Um, there was a movie back in the 80s uh, called, I think it was called The Man with Two Brains. Anybody seen the movie? Okay, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, there's also a YouTube clip of it that maybe you've seen. And uh, Steve Martin plays this brilliant, brilliant brain surgeon. The movie is a wonky, weird movie. By no means am I recommending. But there's this, this scene, and there's been this terrible car accident. And Steve Martin is on the scene, and he's this brilliant brain surgeon. And there's this little girl that's standing next to him. And he looks at this little girl, and he says, I need you to dial, you know, one, two, three, four, five and I need you to call this hospital, and I need you to ask for this person, I need you to prepare this operating room for this procedure, okay? And she, he's like, do you got it? And this little girl, uh, I, I couldn't, repeats it all back verbatim. And he's like, all right, go and do it. And then she looks at him, she's like, sounds like it's a subdural, subdermal hematoma. And he's like, oh yeah, does it? Well, it's not, it's a paradermal hematoma. I don't know. I'm making up words at this point in time. Right? And, 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 and the, the entire like, scene revolves around just how ridiculous of a scene this is. Like this five-year-old girl would look at a brain surgeon and be like, oh yeah, no, I know exactly what needs to happen. You know? Like, clearly she needs this brain procedure to fix this very complicated medical problem. But that's not the way that children act. They act when they are hurt and they need help by, ow, 
right? Like your children don't come up and be like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about the way that you put this bandage on. I might be able to get a skin infection based upon my own propensity to drag my arm through mud. Right? Like, why? One, they don't know the right answer. And two, they don't have to. And so David says, the psalmist says, God, you know what I need most? I need to wake up one in the morning. He knows that much. And I need to know your steadfast love. That's better than me writing some prescription and hoping that you'll bless it or fill it. The biggest thing that David needs is not a what, it's a who. And the who is the Lord. He doubles down on it by saying, make me know the way I should go for to you I lift up my soul. There was this season a couple years ago, just a, a dry and difficult season personally where I was wrestling and um, I was reading this psalm and this image of to you I lift up my soul. It became something where there was times in prayer where I felt like I wanted to literally just kind of raise my hand up and say, you got to take this. It, the, the, the idiom here, the Hebrew idiom is, is, is really a way of saying, I push all my chips into the center of the table. I'm putting all of this in your hands. Like he says, I, I need one thing to know in the morning of your steadfast love. And then he says, and I'll put everything on that one request. This is the crux of what we need, which is a who. The Lord himself is our greatest need. Think of it this way. I've said this as I've walked with people in difficult times and I've found it to be true. You'll do one of two things. You will either look around you at the world that you're in and the circumstances that you find yourself. And based upon those circumstances, you will interpret who the Lord is and how good he is. You'll either look at your circumstances and by your circumstances will interpret how the good the Lord is. Or you will look at the Lord knowing how good he is, and then you will interpret your circumstances based on it. And David is pleading that the Lord would shift his vision, would give him faith to see the world in that way. If I can only be assured in the morning of your steadfast love, then I'll be able to see all these other things that are going on around me, which are indeed difficult and hard things. It does not ignore or deny the existence of trouble. It simply says that even the trouble is subject to our Father who is in heaven, who loves us. David understands that the who, the person that we need, is the Lord. And then he finishes by revealing to us the place we need. He goes on and he says this, 
In verse 9, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord, for I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground for your name's sake, O Lord. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. David finishes his prayer with a flurry of final requests, but they could be summed up by saying that he asks for the Lord's leadership and deliverance. Uh, my father, several, well, several years ago, maybe even 20 years ago at this point in time, was diagnosed with depression. He had worked really his entire adult life in law enforcement. And specifically in the role that he was in, he oftentimes was the one dealing with a host of domestic crimes. So spousal crimes against each other, crimes against children, uh, even violence inflicted against uh, themselves. And so he was typically there afterwards to sift through the mess. And as you can imagine, it took a toll. And it took a toll on him, and it took a toll on his marriage, and it took a toll on our family. And, and eventually he went and was diagnosed with depression. And they just simply said, it's okay that you were diagnosed with this. You are seeing hard things and walking through them. Yeah, there are some people by nature, based on their own story or based on the fact that they've walked with other people's stories, that are more acquainted with the brokenness of this world. Some of you don't have to look back too far in your own story to know that this world is not as it ought to be. Some people by God's grace, have not experienced the depth of the brokenness of this world. But also in that place, sometimes the enemy lies to us. And he tells us that this world is very close to being good. That it's very close to being perfect. That if we could get just this one thing, then finally this world would be as it ought to be. But David ends this psalm by reminding us that's not the case. Verses 9 and 10 specifically, they're, they're filled with action words, words of movement. David asked the Lord to deliver him. Literally, that Hebrew word means to snatch away and to carry him away. He declares that he is fleeing toward the Lord. And then he requests the Lord to lead him on level ground. Our lives as Christ followers, as disciples, as, as children of God, are lives of movement. The Lord is writing a story. A story of redemption. And he has called us, invited us, into walking with him in that story of redemption. And yes, David is in this psalm asking for temporary, temporal healing and help. 
He does want help now, but look at how he ends the entirety of the psalm in verse 12. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. What enemies? Just the enemies now? No. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. Yes, David is calling for help now, but he is also having his eyes firmly fixed on the day where all of his enemies, where all of his troubles will cease. And there's only one day. Revelation 21, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. The the Gospel writer John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think for a moment how often your prayers for yourself, for your spouse, for your children, for your friends, are not simply centered on temporary healing. Right? Like, could there be a a bigger answered prayer than Mary and Martha asking Jesus to resurrect Lazarus? I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have prayed for that, but they did, and they got it. And the truth is, it was beautiful. And yet Lazarus would die again. How often are your prayers, and when I say your, I mean mine, not just fixed on now, but have our eyes fixed forward? How often are we as desperate for the day that all of our enemies, sin, death, Sickness, shame, guilt, isolation, be utterly done away with. I read a report recently that uh, U.S. retirement assets, financial assets, total over $35 trillion. I don't know how many zeros are on that, but it's a lot. $35 trillion, over a third of household financial assets are retirement assets. And there's a couple reasons why. One, people understand that there's coming a day after they stop working that they're going to need money to exist. But there is also this vision that we paint for each other that one day the stress of working and the stress of parenting will be done And on that day, if you have enough resources, you can actually enjoy your life. Do you know how many years on average people get in retirement before the end of their life? 
10 to 12. 10 to 12. And yet I know some of you well enough that you have a very defined strategy for investing in your retirement. You are making sacrifices. You're thinking about it when the stock market goes up and down. You're playing around with the mixture of the funds that you have. I mean, it is a central point of your life for 10 to 12 years, by the way, at which point your body will be rapidly declining. Sickness, illness, shame, guilt, it'll all still be there. It'll just be with you on a golf cart. Right, and obviously there's some tongue in cheek here, but what I want to see is like 10 to 12 years of, I don't know how good that life's gonna be anyways, versus an eternity of perfection with the Lord. Which one are our eyes more set on? Because David, the Lord himself through scripture is saying, don't set your eyes on that. Set your eyes on me and set your eyes on the place that you were actually created for. In my presence, in perfection, forever and ever. Listen, I've heard it said before that uh, our prayers suffer because we spend the entire time just asking the Lord for things. And, And I get the sentiment, right? We can treat the Lord like a genie. We can treat him like he just exists to bless our plans But I think that statement misses the mark. And here's why. Because as we sang, we need the Lord. Every hour we need him. And we don't ever outgrow our need for him. And by the way, he created us that way. The issue is not that we ask the Lord too much. Perhaps the issue is that we don't see our true needs and ask him for those things that truly will satisfy. A position before him where we are his beloved and our sin is no more. His presence being with the one we were created for and knowing his goodness and his grace and the place that he is even now preparing for us that he would come back and get us and bring us to be with him this is what we need and the beauty is that in Christ Jesus he stands ready and desiring to give us those very things pray with me